Well, just a little bit about who I am. Uh, I am a Christian apologist. Uh, besides being a husband and a father of five kids, um, I'm a Christian apologist. I travel around the country uh, and speak at different churches just about every weekend on topics related to the defense of the Christian faith. First uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 15 tells us that we're to always be ready to make a defense, to, to explain to people why we have the hope that we have. What I have found, though, is that a lot of Christians are not prepared to make a defense of the faith and to explain to people why they believe in God and why they believe the Bible is trustworthy. Um, and, and other books aren't trustworthy, like the Quran or the Book of Mormon and that kind of a thing. So um, uh, I live in Southern California with my wife and five kids. We live about a half an hour north of San Diego. I was coming out here this weekend to uh, take my daughter to Liberty University. She's considering going to college there, wanted to do a tour of the campus. I've got lots of airline miles, so we decided to um, make a little weekend out of it. She's with me here uh, this morning, and um, we worked it out with your pastor for me to share with you all this morning, so I'm honored to be here, thankful for the opportunity, and... um, I, I hope you guys are encouraged. If you have your Bibles, uh, why don't you turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I also wanted to mention that we fellowship at a Calvary Chapel uh, in Southern California, so I feel right at home here with you guys. I got saved at a Calvary Chapel in 1990 at the age of 21, and they haven't been able to get rid of me since. Um, <laughs> I actually went on staff there. I was an assistant pastor for nine years at that Calvary Chapel. But for about the past 10, 12 years, I've been doing um, itinerant teaching, uh, traveling around and talking about different apologetic topics. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, I'd like to draw your attention to verse 13 and then just make a comment or two by way of introduction and then pray one more time. But if you don't have a Bible, I'll put it on the screen for you as well. Verse 13 Paul says this, he says, For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. The Apostle Paul here commends the Christian believers in the city of Thessalonica for realizing that the scriptures he had shared with them sometime previously were not a collection of cleverly devised fables invented by men or the musings perhaps of some philosophers. No, he commends them for realizing that the scriptures were the very word of God. Now, I'm sure that most of you who are here this morning believe that to be the case when it comes to the Bible. You're convinced that the Bible is the Word of God, written by men, yes, but men who are guided by God as they pen down its words. You're you're convinced of that as I am. But I think it's safe to say you probably have some friends, neighbors, coworkers who are not so convinced, are they? Or they perhaps would be at church here with you this morning. They have questions and doubts about the Bible. Many of them say, well, the Bible is just an ancient book of fiction and mythology. Uh, The contents of the Bible have been changed and tampered with 
down through the centuries. The Bible's out of sync with modern scientific discoveries. Ever heard any of these objections? I'm sure you have. So then why do we continue to believe that the Bible is trustworthy in spite of all the skepticism and doubts? Well, that's what I want to talk to you about today. I want to give you a concise overview this morning of seven different lines of evidence, seven pools of evidence for the trustworthiness of the Bible. If we were doing an all-day seminar, we could maybe go through 20 pools of evidence. Let's just narrow it down this morning to seven. Seven reasons I'm confident the Bible is trustworthy and seven reasons I believe anyone who's open-minded enough to consider the evidence can also come to that same conclusion. So let's go ahead and pray quickly one more time and then we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, again, we just commit this time to you. Lord, we're thankful for the word of God, but we realize it's under assault today from just about every direction. God, I pray that you use this time to fortify our faith, to strengthen our faith, to encourage our hearts today, God, and to also equip us to be ready, to be better prepared to talk to skeptics and atheists and people who doubt the reliability of the Bible. So work to that end, we do pray now in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, if you're a note taker, you might jot down some of the the main points anyways. The first pool of evidence that we'll consider for a few minutes is what we call fulfilled prophecy. Fulfilled prophecy. Of course, sports analysts, political experts, and even astrologers today seem to enjoy making predictions about future events. But their failure rate quickly reveals how inept humans are at rightly foretelling uh, future events. My goodness, just consider our recent presidential election. The experts a day before the election were assuring the nation that Hillary Clinton was going to be our next president. Well, of course, we see how that turned out. We have a hard time predicting events even a day in advance let alone years in advance. Well, this is one of the reasons the Bible's fulfilled prophecies are so astounding. Over and over again, the authors of the Bible rightly foretold future events, oftentimes hundreds of years in advance. The Bible is literally filled with hundreds of specific detailed prophecies about persons, places, and events, many of which have already come to pass. Consider a few of the prophecies made regarding Jesus. Of course, long before Jesus was born, the Old Testament prophets there in the nation of Israel foretold, predicted in advance that a Savior was coming, that God would send into the world one day who would make a way for sinful humanity to be reconciled back into a right relationship with our maker. The Old Testament prophesied that this coming Savior would be a descendant of Abraham, that he'd enter the world through the lineage of Judah and into the family of David. God began spelling out these kinds of specific details all the way back in the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. Micah chapter 5, verse 2 said that he would be born in the little town of Bethlehem. That was predicted about 700 years before Jesus was born there. 
Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 said that he would be born of a virgin. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 declared that he would come while the Jewish temple was still standing. That's interesting. Is the Jewish temple standing today? No. Flavius Josephus, a first century historian working for the Roman Empire, tells us that the Romans marched into Jerusalem in AD 70 and destroyed the Jewish temple. Well, according to the Old Testament prophets, the coming Savior, the coming Messiah, was going to stand in the temple. That would require a pre-AD 70 coming for the Messiah. And of course, we know Jesus met that timing requirement. Isaiah 35 and elsewhere foretold the kinds of miracles that he would perform to validate who he was. Check it out sometime, Isaiah 35. Verse five and six says he's going to open the eyes of the blind He's going to unstop the ears of the deaf, and he's going to cause the lame to walk. Sound familiar? Very kinds of miracles we read about in the New Testament. Jesus performing. Isaiah 53, verse 3, then prophesied that he would be despised, that he'd be rejected, that he'd be forsaken. Psalm 118, verse 22, even said he'd be rejected by his own people. Think of that. 700 years before Jesus was born, Jewish prophets foretold that the Jewish people themselves would reject the Messiah. And that's precisely what happened when the Jewish religious rulers handed Jesus over to Pontius Pilate to be put to death. And not only did Jewish prophets foretell Jesus' death, Daniel chapter 9, fascinating passage. Daniel chapter 9 prophesied the precise year in history that this coming Savior would die for the sins of the world. Get out a good Bible commentary sometime and do a little in-depth study on Daniel chapter 9. Incredible prophecy. Daniel nails the year of Jesus' crucifixion 600 years in advance. Now, some people would say, well, maybe that, you know, the Old Testament, maybe someone inserted that into the Old Testament you know, after Jesus came and died, and then they doctored it up. No, we've got surviving manuscripts of the Old Testament that predate Jesus' birth. They're called the Dead Sea Scrolls. I'll talk a little bit more about them later. We know that passage wasn't doctored up because we have surviving copies of the book of Daniel that are older than the time of Jesus. Psalm 22, verses 16 through 18, prophesied how this coming Savior would die. Incredible. David, writing a thousand years before Jesus was even born, says that his hands and his feet are going to be pierced during his death. Now, people in David's day might have wondered, what is he talking about? Pierced hands? Why might that have been somewhat confusing to them? Well, because this was 300 years when David made this prediction. This was 300 years before the art of crucifixion had even been invented. Yet with the aid of the Holy Spirit, David was able to accurately describe the events surrounding Jesus' death a thousand years in advance. And they didn't stop there. Psalm 16, verse 10, written by David, and Isaiah 53, verse 10, prophesied that this coming Savior would then rise from the dead. Friends, this is just a tiny sampling of some of the prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus' life. The Old Testament, completed 400 years before Jesus' birth, contains more than 300 references to the coming Messiah that were fulfilled in Jesus' life. 
Calculations using the science of probability on just eight of these prophecies have shown that the chance someone could have fulfilled even just eight of these prophecies is one in 10 to the 17th power. A university professor in California spent a year with his entire student body doing all the mathematical calculations. They're the ones that came up with this number. Some good things still come out of California. <laughs> not, not much, but some things. Put another way, that's one in 100 quadrillion. One in 10 to the 17th power, that's, what that, that, that's one in 100 quadrillion. And there are hundreds of other prophecies in the Bible that have been fulfilled regarding the rise and fall of nations. It's not just prophecies about Jesus. The Bible made all kinds of other predictions about other things that have been fulfilled as well. Well, the fulfillment of these prophecies is compelling evidence that these men spoke with the aid of the all-knowing, all-powerful God described in the Bible. The God who declared in Isaiah 46, verse 9 and 10, I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done. In other words, God says here, I'm the only one who can do this. And that is certainly the case. No other book in the world today is able to substantiate its claims with this kind of supernatural ability to rightly foretell human events. There are no fulfilled prophecies in the Quran, not one. There are no fulfilled prophecies in the Book of Mormon, the Hindu Vedas, or any other sacred religious writings. I've taught college-level courses on world religions and cults. I've studied these books. There are zero fulfilled prophecies in them. So, number one, we have fulfilled prophecy. And I think that's a good place to start off in conversations with people uh, when we dialogue with them about the Bible. But let's consider a second pool of evidence for the Bible, and that is archaeological evidence. Archaeological evidence. Many critics who brush off the Bible as a compilation of folklore and legend do so overlooking the fact that thousands of archaeological discoveries over the past century have again and again verified the historical reliability of the Bible. So I notice that everyone's looking around. Oh, they're back up. Okay. I thought my monitor back here is working, but maybe. I don't know. So archaeology has again and again helped to establish the historical reliability of the Bible. Let's consider a couple of examples. Uh, this 1993 discovery mentioning David, the king of Israel. Let's start there. And by the way, these aren't actual portraits. Uh, <laughs> Uh, of the persons, <laughs> just in case you were wondering. But, uh, now, up until, um, I, hate, I hate to throw this student under the bus, but one of my students once came up to me and asked <laughs> if that was actually the case. Um, I, had to, I had to break his heart. No, it's not, not really a portion. <laughs> now, up until um, 1993, not a shred of evidence could be found anywhere outside of the Bible that David, the king of Israel, ever existed. And so critics long thought that he was just an invention, some sort of uh, mythological creation of Old Testament writers. Well, their skepticism regarding David collapsed overnight 
1993, when this piece of an ancient monument dating back to 900 years before Christ was discovered in the ruins of a town called Dan in northern Israel, mentioning David, the king of Israel. It was an incredible discovery. As a result of that discovery, Time Magazine said in an article about that discovery that the skeptics claimed that King David never existed is now hard to defend. Uh, indeed, it is. Another fascinating discovery has to do with Pontius Pilate. The New Testament authors tell us that he was the Roman governor of Judea at the time of Christ. Of course, he's the one who oversaw Jesus' trial and then had him sentenced to death by crucifixion. Was he a legendary figure, perhaps? No. In the 1960s, I believe it was 1961, a team of Italian archaeologists was digging here in the Mediterranean port city of Caesarea. While digging in the jumbled ruins of this ancient Roman theater, these archaeologists made an incredible discovery. They uncovered this limestone block that bore an inscription in Latin dating to the early part of the first century that mentioned Pontius Pilate, prefect or governor of Judea. So this inscription verified for us that Pontius Pilate was an actual historical person and that he reigned in the very position ascribed to him in the Gospels and that as prefect, he would have had the authority to pardon or condemn Jesus, just as the Gospel accounts report. Some other fascinating discoveries include... Uh, ancient extra-biblical accounts of a catastrophic flood, accounts that were written down after the flood as Noah's descendants spread out to different parts of the ancient world. The ruins of Jericho and the collapsed walls spoken of in the book of Joshua chapter 6 have now been identified by archaeologists. You're seeing a photograph of some of those ruins there. Uh, the ancient ruins of Nineveh, a long-lost city buried under feet, uh, 30 or 40 feet of sand was unearthed by a British archaeologist a while back named Austin Layard. This is the city where Jonah went and preached. Some people thought that place might not have ever existed because the city had been lost to the sands of time, but they have finally found it. King Hezekiah's tunnel's been unearthed. This is a tunnel you've read about in 2 Kings chapter 20. It was built to secretly channel water into the city of Jerusalem so that the people there in Jerusalem could survive a siege. It was built seven or 800 years before Jesus was born. It's written about in the Old Testament. You can go to Israel today and walk through that very tunnel. Uh, the ruins of King Herod's palace just south of Jerusalem, there on the screen for you, as well as coins with his name inscribed on them. Of course, he was the one who sought to have Jesus killed shortly after he was born in Matthew chapter 2. The Pool of Siloam, as it's called, in John chapter 9 has been unearthed by archaeologists. This is the pool where Jesus sent the man with the mud on his eyes and where his eyes were uh, miraculously opened up. Jacob's Well, as it's called, in John chapter 4 has been found. This is the well where Jesus met the Samaritan woman. There's a Greek Orthodox church now uh, covering the well, but you can go into the church and go see the well. The archaeologists are confident that's the very well. Uh, Herod's palace has been found, uh, the one mentioned in Mark chapter 6 on top of that hill overlooking the Dead Sea where John the Baptist was imprisoned and killed. He had multiple palaces. This is the second one uh, that I'm mentioning here this morning. 
That's the Dead Sea there in the background. They've even found the underground dungeon at the palace where the prisoners were chained to the walls. We, we know where, we, we can see where John spent his final days. Are we losing the slides again? You guys can all turn around and look at the TV there. <laughs> then we'll send you to a chiropractor uh, later today. Is there anything I need to do on my end to get those to work? Okay. Uh, this synagogue in Capernaum, you've read about it. It's mentioned in Mark chapter 1, verse 21. This is a synagogue uh, where t- we're told Jesus himself often taught. Friends, you can go to Israel today and see these and hundreds of additional discoveries with your own eyes. They are an amazing evidence of the Bible's historical reliability. If you'd like to learn more about these archaeological discoveries, I've written a full-color book on the topic. It has nearly 100 color photographs in it of these kinds of discoveries, just a handful of what some I mentioned this morning. And we've also recently released a brand-new hour-long DVD of me giving a presentation just on archaeological evidence for the Bible. We have some of those um, in the fellowship hall if you're interested. All right, so first, we have hundreds of fulfilled prophecies. To strengthen our case, we have thousands of archaeological discoveries, and we're still just getting warmed up. I think those two lines of evidence in themselves are powerful. Good reason to reconsider any skepticism that you might have about the Bible. But let's consider a third pool of evidence, the Bible's internal consistency. The Bible's internal consistency, what am I talking about? Well, I'm talking about the Bible's internal harmony. The Bible's internal harmony. From the first book of the Bible, Genesis, to the last book, the book of Revelation, the Bible is absolutely consistent in what it teaches. Now, the skeptic quickly objects and says, hold hold on a second here, Charlie. Why is that an evidence of the Bible's trustworthiness? There's plenty of books that are internally consistent. Well, I agree with them, actually, on that point. Back in the 1990s in Southern California, I worked at a surfing magazine before I went into pastoral ministry. (laughs) I used to put a picture of me surfing on like this two-foot wave. I thought, that's so wimpy. We're putting a real wave up there. But then everyone started asking me, was that you on that wave? No. And that's not Photoshop, by the way. That's, That's a real picture in Tahiti. Well, we, we put out an internally consistent magazine every month. I never recall any of the writers contradicting one another in the different articles that we wrote. Does that mean then that we too were putting out God-breathed scripture every month? Of course not. Well, then what makes the Bible any different than some other book or magazine that's internally consistent? Well, let me share with you a few uh, quick reasons. I think the internal harmony of the Bible is an amazing evidence of its divine origin. The first reason is this. The Bible addresses life's most controversial questions. The Bible addresses life's most controversial questions. At the Surfing Magazine, we wrote about who won the latest surf contest, surf wax, (laughs) sunscreen, (laughs) I thought it was hugely important at the time. I I kind of thought, you know, in Southern California, the world kind of revolves around the surfing world. Well, looking back on it now, it all seems kind of trivial. But these are not the type of matters the authors of the Bible were writing about. 
They weren't writing about sunscreen and surf wax. No, from beginning to end, they were tackling the big questions of life. Questions like, uh, how did the universe come into existence? And does God exist? And if so, what is he like? We never touch that at the magazine. Uh, why do people exist? Why is there evil and suffering in the world? And what happens to people after they die? Those are the big controversial questions of life. Those are the questions people tend to disagree about. Just ask your neighbors some of these questions sometime. You'll quickly see how many people passionately disagree about these issues. And yet the authors tackle these issues, these issues head on chapter after chapter, book after book, from beginning to end, and they do so absolutely consistently. How do you pull that off? You've got to have someone orchestrating things. And we believe God did. A second factor that makes the internal harmony of the Bible evidence of its divine origin is this. The Bible is a collection of 66 different documents. It's a collection of 66 different documents. It might be easy to have internal harmony in the Bible if the Bible was a single book, but it's not. It's a compilation of more than uh, five dozen different books. Factor number three, the Bible was written by approximately 40 different authors who wrote in three different languages. 40 plus authors writing things down in three different languages. Now, I think it would be easy to have internal harmony in a book like the Quran. Why is that? Well, because it contains the teachings of how many people? Just one. The teachings of Muhammad, born about 600 years after Jesus. Well, the Bible is entirely different than the Quran in this regard. It contains the teachings of 40 different people. Factor number four, the Bible was written over a period of approximately 1,500 years. Many of the authors did not even know one another. It's not like they could have all gotten together and colluded or conspired you know, to make things harmonize. Many of them had no relationship with one another. And not only were many of them separated by hundreds of years in time, factor number five, many of the authors were separated by hundreds of miles geographically. A lot of people don't realize that. The Bible was written down, not just in the city of Jerusalem. No, it was written down in different places on three different continents, different parts of Africa, Asia, and Europe. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think of pulling together 40 different people spread out over 1,500 years who live on three different continents, who speak three different languages, to write 66 documents regarding life's most controversial issues, I'm thinking we're going to have some serious problems. That book is going to be a mess. It's going to be a difficult read. And yet, in spite of all these factors, the Bible is a perfectly harmonious, consistent account of how God is seeking to reconcile sinners like you and me back into relationship with himself. This internal consistency is powerful evidence that the authors of the Bible were being guided by the Holy Spirit when they wrote the different books of the Bible. One of the popular objections to the reliability of the Bible today is this. I'm sure you've heard the phrase. Uh, the Bible isn't trustworthy. It was written by men. If I had a dollar uh, for every time someone's told me that, well, when someone tells me that, 
I like to lovingly point out that their conclusion there at the end of that little phrase doesn't, well, or at the beginning of the phrase, actually, that's their conclusion. They state that first. But their conclusion does not follow from their premise. Just because something was written by men does not mean it's not trustworthy. If that were the case, we would have to throw out encyclopedias, dictionaries, automobile manuals, and so on, all written by men. Men are capable of communicating truthfully, especially when they have God's help, as the biblical authors did. So the third line of evidence that the Bible, though written by men, is trustworthy is the Bible's internal consistency. Let's consider a fourth pool of evidence for a few minutes. Number four, if you're taking notes, extra biblical writings. Extra biblical writings, what am I talking about? Well, I'm talking about the fact that there are dozens of writings that survive outside of the Bible in the records of the Assyrians, Babylonians, and Romans that verify the historical accuracy of the Bible's records of different persons, places, and events. As far as persons are concerned, external sources, this is a great little fact to write down, external sources verify that more than 50 persons mentioned in the Old Testament and more than 30 persons written about in the New Testament were actual historical figures. Think of that. More than 80 persons written about in the Bible are talked about, written about, in surviving historical records from the ancient world. We're not reading about mythological characters when we pick up and read the Bible. We're reading about real people that have been verified even outside of the Bible. In fact, right there on the screen for you are written references to three people you've read about in the Bible. Hezekiah, there on the left. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, mentioned there in the middle. And then Cyrus, talked about in Ezra chapter 1. The first century historian, Flavius Josephus, writes about more than a dozen people you've read about in the New Testament, including Herod the Great. Talks all about Herod the Great. He talks all about Pontius Pilate. He talks about John the Baptist and his ministry in Israel and how he had thousands of followers coming out to be baptized by him and how Herod Antipas locked him up at his palace and then had him killed, verifying the same kinds of details we read about in the New Testament. Giving away some of my information in advance, but I forgot I'm going to talk about that in a minute. Oh, he mentions Caiaphas, the high priest, and he mentions Jesus as well. As for biblical events that have extra-biblical corroboration, the examples are uh, legion. Let me just give you two quick examples, one from the Old Testament, one from the New. First, the Old. We're told in the Old Testament that Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians came against the southern kingdom of Judah. The year was 605 B.C. The Babylonians besieged the city of Jerusalem and took many of the Jews, including Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, captive back to the city of Babylon in modern-day Iraq. You've read about this, I believe, in Daniel chapter 1, 2 Kings 24. Well, this has been confirmed outside of the Bible. Where so? In ancient Babylonian records. 
Thousands of ancient Babylonian clay tablets containing a treasure trove of information about Babylon's history were unearthed in Babylon in the mid-19th century. They are known as the Babylonian Chronicle Tablets. They found thousands of these written clay tablets, like the two you see on the screen, that tell us all about Babylon's history. Amazingly, these Babylonian records tell us of the very siege against Jerusalem uh, written about in 2 Kings 24 and Daniel chapter 1. And that's not all. They also confirm the fact that the Babylonians then, after they conquered the city of Jerusalem, deported the Jewish people hundreds of miles away back to their city of Babylon, verifying for us that the authors of the Bible were telling us the exact truth about these matters. Here's a quick example of how an extra-biblical source corroborates the New Testament. This example concerns John the Baptist, and I already gave you this, uh, the, kind of spoiled the story in advance. But the New Testament tells us that Herod the Great's son, Herod Antipas, cast John the Baptist into prison for condemning Antipas' adulterous relationship with his brother's wife. Sometime later, an executioner came and John was beheaded. So we're all familiar with that. Well, as I mentioned a moment ago, this has been confirmed in the writings of Flavius Josephus. Flavius Josephus writes all about Herod Antipas. He writes about his adulterous wife, the one mentioned in the New Testament, and the murder of John the Baptist in his book that survives to this day. It's called Antiquities of the Jews. It's in the public domain. You can find it on the internet. But let me just pull a, a short excerpt out for you. Notice who he mentions right there on the top line. John, that was called the Baptist, was a good man and commanded the Jews to exercise virtue, both as to righteousness towards one another and piety towards God, and so to come to baptism. Herod, who feared the great influence John had over the people, sent John a prisoner out of Herod's suspicious temper to Machaerus. That's that castle that was overlooking the Dead Sea earlier in the photo I put up. The castle I before mentioned, Josephus says, and was there put to death. So notice that Josephus verifies the historicity of John the Baptist and his murder. Other historical sources outside the Bible corroborate details surrounding the flood, long lifespans prior to the flood, details surrounding the Exodus, the Assyrian invasion of Israel, uh, Cyrus's freeing of Jews from Babylon, Jesus's crucifixion at Passover. Josephus talks all about that. Uh, the prolonged darkness on the day Jesus died, Herod Agrippa's sudden death after being hailed as a god, and the expulsion of Jews from Rome, mentioned in the book of Acts, just as a small sampling. Friends, critics of the Bible who seek to brush it off as just a compilation of folklore and legends only reveal they have not done any serious investigation regarding these matters. All right, let's consider a fifth pool of evidence for a few minutes, the Bible's scientific accuracy and foresight. The Bible's scientific accuracy and foresight. Of course, many critics of the Bible would immediately disagree with us today that the Bible is scientifically accurate. They point to verses like Joshua 10, 13 that says the sun stood still or John's reference to the four corners of the earth in Revelation 7, verse 1, and they conclude that the Bible teaches that the sun revolves around a flat four-cornered earth. Well, they are overlooking the fact that the writers of the Bible were not writing a technical textbook on astronomy. They were describing things as they appeared to the eye, as was the case in Joshua chapter 10, 
or simply employing normal figures of speech, as was the case with John's reference to the four corners of the earth. And we, living in this scientifically advanced age, still do the exact same thing. We don't wake up early in the morning, throw open the eastern window, and say, what a beautiful earth rotation. <laughs> if that's what you call a sunrise, come and talk to me afterwards. <laughs> Technically speaking, though, the sun is not rising. The earth is rotating. It only gives the appearance the sun is moving. And yet, in this advanced age, we still call it a sunrise. Uh, meteorologists, in fact, tell us on the nightly news what time the sun will go down. They call it a sunset. Well, no one's accusing them of being unscientific. They're just using simple, straightforward language to describe the way things appear to be happening. When the Apostle John referred to the four corners of the earth in the book of Revelation, he was using a well-known figure of speech to simply describe the four cardinal directions, north, south, east, and west, and we still use the same figure of speech 2,000 years later. So keeping in mind that the writers of the Bible described things in simple terms as they appeared to the eye and that they employed figures of speech occasionally, like metaphors, personification, and such, does away with many of the alleged scientific inaccuracies in the Bible. Now, granted, Scripture is out of sync with some of the philosophies and theories that some scientists hold to, the most obvious being atheistic naturalism and the theory of biological macroevolution. If a scientist today believes that everything that exists came into being from nothing and by nothing and then evolved into its current condition by some mindless series of unguided acts, well then, yes, the Bible's out of sync with that. But that, uh, th that goes without saying. But when it comes to known, testable, verifiable facts, the Bible has been found to be in perfect harmony with the way things really are, which is incredible when you think about it because as you know, the Bible was written two to 4,000 years ago, long before the invention of microscopes, telescopes, satellites, and other technologies that have now allowed us to investigate our Earth and the universe. Well, the fact that the Bible was written so long ago and touches on a myriad of topics and yet does not contain any scientific errors might be considered evidence for divine inspiration in itself. Uh, why is that? Well, without exception, every ancient religious writing has certain unscientific views of astronomy, medicine, hygiene, and so on. For example, the Hindu Vedas teach that the earth is flat and triangular. They also teach that earthquakes are the result of elephants shaking their bodies underneath <laughs> the ground. I wish that was what was going on. We do you guys get earthquakes out here much in Virginia? Okay, well, I live in Southern California. We get them you know, every few months, at least a small one. I wish, I wish that was what was happening. I'd, I'd love to just look over at my wife as she begins to panic a little bit and, and just say, it's, it's just the elephants. <laughs> that sounds a lot safer to me than the San Andreas Fault is slipping in. We might die. Um, but... Uh, the Quran and the Book of Mormon have uh, numerous scientific errors as well, as we point out on our website. If you're not familiar with our website and you have a pen handy, uh, you might write it down. It's always be ready. 
www.thebookofmormon.com. Alwaysbeready.com. There on the website, you'll find lots of helpful articles, um, audio lectures and videos, lots of it for free, um, that will explain lots of these things uh, in a more in-depth fashion. Now, I mentioned the Hindu Vedas and the elephants uh, underneath the ground. The Bible steers free of these kinds of errors. But not only that, it makes known amazing facts about our world and the universe thousands of years before scientists discovered that they were actually true. Let me just share with you two quick examples. This first one has to do with the shape of the earth. The shape of the earth. The ancient Egyptians, Babylonians, and other cultures are all on the historical record for having believed that the earth was flat. Remarkably, though, the Bible went against the prevailing views of the day and indicated that the earth was a round sphere. Where so? Well, in a book thought to be written about 2000 BC, the book of Job, chapter 26, verse 10, says that God has inscribed a circle on the surface of the waters at the boundary of light and darkness. Well, that's fascinating. Let me break it down for you what he has just made, made clear. Job says God has drawn a what? A circle, where? On the surface of the waters. That's a reference to the oceans. At the boundary of light and darkness. This boundary between light and darkness is where uh, evening and morning occur. But again, notice the boundary is not a square or a triangle. It's a circle. Why is that? Well, because the earth is round. Another verse that speaks of the circular shape of the earth is found in Isaiah 40, verse 22. It says that God sits above the circle of the earth. From space, the earth has a circular shape to it, doesn't it? Now, we know that because we have satellites and astronauts at the space station who've taken photographs of the earth for us, but how did Isaiah know that? How did Job know that? We believe they had some inside information from the one who made the planet. A second example of the Bible's amazing accuracy and foresight concerns the suspension of the earth. The suspension of the earth. What am I talking about? Well, ancient Hindus believe the earth rested on the backs of elephants who stood on the back of a turtle. That's some turtle. That's all I got to say. I mean, if that was really the case, <laughs> that's a crazy turtle, but... Um, there were all kinds of theories long ago. Something has to hold the earth up, people reason. Well, what did the Bible say regarding the matter? Well, Job chapter 26, verse 7 says that God stretches out the north over empty space. He hangs the earth on nothing. Nothing, no turtles or elephants. In other words, the earth hangs completely unattached in space. This is astounding. Scientists were still trying to figure this out thousands of years later. Now, these kinds of statements in the Bible raise the question, how in the world could the authors have known these kinds of things living so long ago? Were they taking wild guesses? I don't think so. Their perfect accuracy seems to rule that out, especially when you consider the fact they made dozens of these kinds of statements. We just briefly considered two. Well, the Bible tells us how they knew these kinds of things in verses like 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. It says, men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. They weren't taking wild guesses. The God who created the universe and the earth and who knows all there is to know about creation, he came alongside these men. He superintended the writing of scripture to make sure that what they penned accurately reflected the way things really are. 
If you'd like to learn more about the Bible's scientific accuracy and foresight, I discuss this fifth pool of evidence uh, in a much more in-depth fashion in this particular DVD um, called The Bible's Scientific Accuracy and Foresight. We have some copies of that today if you're interested. Now, so far in our time together, we've considered five different uh, lines of evidence for the Bible. We still have time to briefly consider two more, but I want to pause right here for a quick moment and point something out to you. I've purposely arranged these first five evidences in the order that I have so that if you can remember the simple acronym FACES, F-A-C-E-S, you'll have a bit of a memory aid to work from the next time you're looking into the faces of people who are questioning your confidence in the Bible. The F can remind you that you can talk to them for a minute or two about fulfilled prophecy. The A can remind you that you can then switch gears and talk to them for a minute or two about archaeological evidence. The C reminds us of the Bible's internal consistency. The E reminds us of extra biblical writings. And the S reminds us of the Bible's scientific accuracy and foresight. So just having a little framework there in your mind allows you to move forward a little more confidently in your conversation with people about the Bible. Hopefully that'll be helpful. All right, let's consider a sixth pool of evidence for a few minutes. Uh, manuscript evidence is what we call this one. Manuscript evidence, what am I talking about? Well, critics of the Bible, like Bart Ehrman, there on the screen, um, probably the most famous critic of the Bible today, uh, Muslims and Mormons as well, commonly say the Bible has been translated and copied so many times down through the centuries, we can't trust what it says today, even if the Bible was once trustworthy. Well, as popular as this belief has become, it is a mistaken one. And the manuscript evidence actually proves this to be the case. What is a manuscript? Well, there's a photograph of one on the screen for you. A manuscript is any surviving handwritten copy of an ancient document that predates the invention of the printing press in 1455. Uh, before the invention of the printing press, Jewish scribes and Christian monks had to make handwritten copies of the Bible, and many of their copies survive to this day. In fact, there survives more than 25,000 partial and complete handwritten manuscript copies just of the New Testament, many dating back to within the first century or two following Jesus' life. We also possess thousands of manuscript copies of Old Testament books, many of them predating the time of Christ. Did you know that? We have handwritten copies of the Old Testament that are older than the time of Jesus. Let me tell you how they were discovered. Pretty fascinating quick story here. In 1947, a shepherd boy tending his father's sheep in Qumran, north and to the west of the Dead Sea in Israel, made an amazing discovery while looking for a lost goat. And if you go to Israel on a guided tour uh, today, they will typically take you to the place where this amazing discovery was was made. But there in Qumran, in a hillside cave that had laid untouched for nearly 2,000 years, this 12-year-old boy discovered a collection of large clay jars containing carefully wrapped leather manuscripts. What this boy stumbled upon was an ancient collection of handwritten copies of the Old Testament that dated as far back as the third century before Christ. This was truly an incredible discovery. Archaeologists were called in and spent years searching the surrounding caves. By the time they were done, copies of every book 
of the Old Testament have been found with the exception of Esther. In some cases, there were multiple copies of the same book. For example, there were 19 copies of the book of Isaiah, 25 copies of Deuteronomy, and 30 copies of the Psalms, about 800 scrolls in totality, if I recall correctly. But what you're seeing there on the screen is one of the original clay jars and a photograph of one of the scrolls of the Psalms. Here's a photograph of one of the scrolls of Isaiah. This scroll has been dated to at least 100 years before Jesus' birth. They opened it up upon its discovery. It's 26 feet long. Not a single chapter missing when compared to our copies of the Bible that we use more than 2,000 years later. Now, why do I mention the Dead Sea Scrolls? Well, because manuscripts like the Dead Sea Scrolls have allowed biblical scholars and textual experts to go back and verify that the Bible we have and use today is the same Bible the early church had 2,000 years ago. And it's important to point out to you that even if we did not have any manuscript copies of the Bible, there's another way of verifying that we have accurate copies of the Bible, and that's by examining the writings of the church fathers. By church fathers, I'm referring to those leaders in the church of the first three centuries following the original disciples. Men like Ignatius, Papias, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Polycarp, and others preserved the Bible for us in their writings and in their commentaries that they wrote on the Bible and in their sermon notes. How so? Well, by including numerous quotations of the Bible in what they wrote. In fact, the early church fathers quoted the New Testament alone more than 86,000 times in their writings. And here's something a lot of people, including most Christians, don't realize. Many of the writings of the early church fathers survive to this day. You can go to Amazon.com this afternoon and buy an encyclopedic size set, 38 volumes of the writings of the church fathers and see with your own eyes there are thousands of quotations of Old Testament and New Testament books and compare it to your Bible today and you'll see the Bible today says the same thing the Bible used to say all the way back in the first, second, third, fourth, and fifth centuries. In fact, there are enough quotations for, just from the early church fathers that even if we did not have a single manuscript copy of the Bible, scholars could still reconstruct nearly the entire New Testament just from their quotations, just from their writings. Now, none of this should come as a surprise to us, guys, that God has preserved his word. Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. God's watching over the scriptures and preserving them for every generation. All right, let's head down the home stretch here and just consider one final line of evidence for the Bible. And that is, number seven, the willingness of the disciples to die for Jesus. The willingness of the disciples to die for Jesus. Flavius Josephus, Eusebius, Tertullian, and other independent extra-biblical sources record for us that many of Jesus' earliest followers, including the apostles, suffered intense persecution and even death for their ongoing belief and preaching that Jesus was Lord and was risen from the dead. We are told in these extra-biblical sources that Matthew, the author of the Gospel of Matthew, was slain with an axe in Ethiopia. 
We're told that Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark, died in the city of Alexandria in northern Egypt after having been cruelly dragged to death through the streets of that city. We're told that Luke was hung to death upon an olive tree in Greece. We're told that John was tortured and exiled to the island of Patmos. James, the brother of John, was beheaded in Jerusalem. This is written about outside of the New Testament, but also in the New Testament. Luke mentions this in Acts chapter 12, verse 2. We're told that Philip was hung up against a pillar in the city of Hierapolis and then stoned to death. Bartholomew flayed alive. Jude shot to death with arrows. Andrew, Peter's brother, one of the 12, bound to a cross with ropes and just left there to die. Barnabas, stoned to death. Paul, after a variety of floggings, tortures, and persecutions, imprisonments, we're told was beheaded with a sword in the city of Rome. We're told that Thomas was run through a body with a spear in southeast India after taking the gospel there. And we're told that Peter was crucified in Rome upside down. Question for you. Were these men lying? Were these men lying? I find it very hard to believe that men willing to die, these kinds of excruciatingly painful deaths for telling people about Jesus were just making up a story about him. Nobody willingly endures persecution and these kinds of deaths for something they're just making up. I mean, people might be willing to die for a cause they believe in, but nobody just willingly dies for something they're inventing or making up. The disciples' willingness to die is compelling evidence that they really believed Jesus existed, and they really believed he was the Messiah, and they really believed he died on a cross and rose from the grave three days later, and I believe them. Friends, you can trust the Bible. You can read it with the highest degree of confidence. And what a blessing it is to know God and to have his word to guide us through this life. Do you know the loving, merciful God revealed to us in the Bible? You can. That's why Jesus, God in the flesh, died on the cross. Because of his great love for you, the Bible says he died there in your place to suffer the judgment you deserved for your sins so that you could be forgiven, so that you could be rescued from spending eternity in hell and be brought back into a relationship with him. He rose from the grave three days later, and today he's offering all humanity the forgiveness of sins and the free gift of everlasting life to all those who will turn from their sins and place their faith in him. Friend, if you need to be reconciled to God, I wanna encourage you today, don't put it off. Your life could come to a screeching halt much sooner than you think. And the Bible assures us that each one of us one day will stand before God to give an account for the things we've done in this life. And you want to make sure that when that day comes for you, your sins have been washed away. But the Bible says there's only one way that can happen, and that's if you have a relationship with the only one who can save you, and that's the one who died for you in your place, Jesus. And he wants to save you. How do you lay hold of forgiveness of sins? Well, 
the Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. <laughs> Romans chapter 10, verse 13. How simple is that? God doesn't say, hey, get your, get your act together and then we'll, we'll talk. Go through these 12 steps first. No, just whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You can call upon him today. He's a prayer away. And you just say, God, save me. I'm a sinner and I'm trusting in Jesus today as my savior. And he'll save you. For the rest of you who've already done that, as I'm sure most of you have, may you draw near to the Lord in the days ahead as we await his coming picking up the scriptures often, fully confident that they truly are the very word of God. Amen.